Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we thank you as we're reminded of these pages in Ezekiel that you've been in control of history for a long time. And uh, so we take comfort in that because we know that you're not stopping that now. And so, Lord, as your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we thank you for it. And we thank you for the privilege of reading it together. So have your way with us now. Please help your word to go deep into our heart and help it to find good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn if you would to Ezekiel chapter 30. Ezekiel chapter 30. So I'm just going to caveat here at the beginning. So um, today we're reading 30 to 32, just three looking at, looking at it. It's pretty long chapters. I will tell you, if you were here on Wednesday night, I was mocked on Wednesday night. That's right. I was mocked. Uh, there's a passing reference. How huh, what? Lovingly. Lovingly mocked. There's a passing reference about halfway through Philippians where he says, finally. And the comment was made, you know, saying the word finally halfway through the book is kind of like saying, we'll read this chapter briefly. Right? So now you, if you weren't here on Wednesday night, now you're in that loop. And so I really kind of took that to heart and thought, well, what am I going to do with that reference? And so I decided I'm not going to say that anymore. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read chapter 30, 31, 32 very slowly. <laughs> we're going to dissect every word. And if next week you want to bring a snack, you're welcome to. All right? So, just kidding. You know, the beauty of, a, of being so well-adjusted is you can just roll through mockery, as I've done most of my adult life. So, well, a lot of my childhood life, that's a whole other story. Uh, but anyway, uh, we are going to read these briefly, uh, which is kind of funny because it's like as I, I was thinking that we were going to do that, and then I was like, well, can't like open myself up without trying to dig out of that hole. But anyway, um, the first 20, I think, five chapters of, the ver- of Ezekiel, just big picture, first 25 or so chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is warning, God, warning uh, at the word of God uh, the people of Jerusalem during the time of their captivities. He's speaking to the people in, that are captive in Babylon, but really talking about yet a future destruction in Jerusalem. Just big picture overview. Uh, after the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the south, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon... Uh, several generations passed. The Assyrian Empire took off the northern kingdom and scattered them and conquered them in 722 B.C. About 140 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, having seen all of that, didn't learn the lesson. They continued to uh, follow uh, pagan idolatry and were ultimately conquered by the Babylonians. But they were conquered by the Babylonians in a, in a series of of three sort of defeats, if you will. First one came in 605 B.C., second one came in 597 B.C., third one and final one 
was in 586 BC. So we find ourselves during that, Ezekiel got carried off, by the way, with a bunch of captives to Babylon in 597 in the second one. So we find ourselves in that period between 597 BC and 586 BC, where Ezekiel is in Babylon speaking to captives. Jeremiah, curiously, is at the same time speaking in Jerusalem to the folks there. And so the same message, judgment is coming. Now, if judgment is coming, that seems like, oh yeah, I knew it all along. God is super harsh. Well, think about it. Judgment is coming is a warning. A warning is an expression of grace, right? A warning is an expression of, tell you what, this is your chance. I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. I'm encouraging you to repent. Once you do or once you do, then everything will be awesome. If you don't, don't be surprised and don't blame it on me, right? I mean, that's, I mean, I'm not an expert, but that's child rearing 101, right? If you do this, there's this consequence. If you do this, there's this either lack of consequence or reward or whatever, right? I mean, it's not quite like dog training, but you get the idea, right? And so God is warning his people, And he does that through the first several chapters of of, uh, Ezekiel. And then he goes into a series of of judgment judgment warnings, if you will, to the surrounding nations. So we find ourselves uh, in a series of chapters here regarding the nation of Egypt. And so uh, chapters 30 to 32 finish off uh, the the nation of Egypt. And specifically, we're going to talk about the pride of Egypt. Now, prior to talking about Egypt... Couple week, or last week and the week before, we talked about the city of Tyre, which was a very prominent, very wealthy, very uppity, very proud culture, and God doesn't like pride. And so, in a sense, we've been talking about God's ad- We've been talking about the historical piece, okay, of Tyre and now of Egypt. But with that, there's sort of the prophetic piece, and with that, there's sort of the biblical application piece. And for us. We're really dealing with what does God do with pride, right? What does God think about pride? Well, God doesn't like pride. What happens? Well, pride is taken down. And so um, throughout the scripture, Egypt is a picture of sort of the world system, the strength of the world, uh, biblical Egypt, particularly prior to this time we're talking about now, was always like the place to go for help. And even when Jerusalem is surrounded by Babylonians in a siege there between 588 and 586 B.C., even in that time, they're going off to Egypt for help. And it doesn't work. And so Egypt is a picture of, of, um, of the world system. Pharaoh, you know, there's always... Pharaoh is the same word, by the way. We'll read the word Pharaoh. It's not the same person that Moses dealt with. Everybody with me there? That was several hundred years ago, but he's still called Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's a title, right? And there's all these different Pharaohs. But, you know, Pharaoh collectively is always a picture of generally somebody that's antagonistic to God. And so uh, those things are always, uh, it doesn't go well. And so what we're going to do, we're going to read briefly through these chapters because they read almost like, almost like a... almost like a poetry, almost like they're, they're meant to be read in stanzas, if you will, uh, and 
paragraphs and chunks. And so that's how we're going to read them, and then we'll pull together some application at the end. Fair enough? All right. May I should read more briefly. All right. The word of the Lord came to me again, chapter 30, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It'll be a day of clouds, a time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken. Ethiopia, Lydia, Libya, Lydia, and all the mingled people, Chub and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. So I'll just encourage you at the get-go, we're going to read a lot of stuff like this, and just try to capture what he's saying, and I think it'll help us understand it, but we'll kind of comment along the way. The day of the Lord, he says here in verse 3, uh, the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is a reference really throughout the scripture of judgment. Uh, the day of the Lord is often used in reference to the great tribulation. Uh, in this case, the day of the Lord is near, and so often, as we've talked about before, as we read in prophecy, there's oftentimes a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And so the near fulfillment here is the day of the Lord, judgment's coming upon Egypt. The far fulfillment is God is ultimately going to judge sin uh, in the great tribulation. He's going to set things, set things in order. And so there's a much more complete fulfillment uh, ultimately yet to come. But he says the day of the Lord is near. He says it'll be a day of clouds. Now, when you look up and you see a dark cloud okay just the cloud what do you think is going to happen soon storm right but so what is the cloud the cloud is really a warning right if you look outside and you see a big cloud you don't need to be a meteorologist or you know have an app that tells you it's going to rain right you know it's going to rain. So a cloud is really sort of a verbal description, if you will, of a warning. And so storm clouds are coming. There's a book written years ago, and, well, not many years ago, by Jim Cimbala called The Storm, and talking about storm clouds are coming culturally to us. And it's a great book. But anyway, um, so clouds. Clouds point to what is come, coming, and judgment is what's coming to, to Egypt and her allies. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, those who uphold Egypt shall fall. Notice that. Those who uphold Egypt shall fall. And the pride, notice that, of her power shall come down. From Migdol to Syene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries, and her cities shall be in, her, in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed on that day. Messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. So notice that here, Egypt is going to be desolate, but also all her helpers. Can I just pause to give us a little bit of reminder on that? You know, sin is sin, but also assisting others in sin is sin. Does that make sense? You know, sin, sin never happens in a vacuum. You ever notice that? Never happens in a vacuum. The thing about sin is um, 
Oftentimes we think it's like, you know, when we're faced with some kind of temptation, we think it's just between us and that temptation. Or we think it's that between us and that person that we're going to sin against. Uh, and, we, and we think of it sort of uh, very simplistically. And we rarely ever, maybe never, but at least rarely ever, consider the fallout of that, right? It always involves more people. And so on the other side... Sin is often helped by other people. So let us not be people that engage in sin. Let us also be people that don't help people engage in sin. Now that may seem simplistic, but as we work through that a little bit, there are some, you know, God, let God deal with you, however God shows you on that. But I think it's a significant thing. Romans chapter 1 goes through, many of us know this, Romans chapter 1 talks through a series of what happens to humanity apart from the Lord right? There's humanity apart from the Lord is a very selfish species and very self-indulgent. And it's a, self-indulgence is a downward spiral. It's a very downward spiral to the point of becoming reprobate, the, uh, the scripture says. And so, you know, when people insist on living that way, God's going God's gonna to let them. And anyway, that's the whole description of Romans chapter one. But at the end of it, Chapter 1, verse 32, he says, Those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Beware of helping or even approving of sinful behavior in our society, in our neighborhoods, all of that. He says then, verse 9, or as long, along the way here through these this 6 through 9, then they will know that I am the Lord. See how often we see that uh, repeated here. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So now he's identifying who the source of judgment, where, where the judgment's coming from. It's going to come from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of nations. God, dis- God describes Babylon this way. On multiple occasions, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it by the hand of aliens. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so, guess what? God says, Judgment's coming to Egypt. Judgment's coming to Egypt and all those who help her. Judgment's coming to Egypt and her allies and all this. And this is how it's coming. It's going to come by the hand of the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, the most terrible of nations. Now, I thought through this a little bit. You know, um, <clears throat> now at the time, was Nebuchadnezzar like a rock star for the Lord? No. He was just another pagan, right? So you may recall the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, is kind of having this dialogue with the Lord, and he's like, Lord, why are are people like so wicked and you seem to be like ignoring it? And God answers and he says, tell you what, I'm not ignoring it. As a matter of fact, I'm preparing the Babylonians to come uh, and take out Judah. And then you you may recall Habakkuk's response. He's like, wait a minute, that's not fair. The Babylonians are worse than we are, (laughs) right? And God says, guess what? I know more than you do, right? And that's how, that's the book of Habakkuk for you. But oftentimes we think, wait a minute, what about, we, we th- the point is we, we don't see as big a picture as God does. 
right? What do we know about Nebuchadnezzar? We know that Nebuchadnezzar is one day going to repent. We read it in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 37 to 38. I'll read it. Nebuchadnezzar, a horrible, horrible, horrible idol worshiper, ruthless, the leader of the most terrible of nations, after God humbles him, and that's a whole long story, I won't get into it, because I'm reading briefly. After, after a very humbling extended period of time on Nebuchadnezzar, God brings him to a point of this. He says, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. So, God took him down, made him eat grass like an ox. He lost his mind, and then that was restored. All of his splendor was restored to him, but this time he wasn't quite so proud of his splendor. This time he said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. That's the guy we're talking about. And to my knowledge, that's the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar in the scripture, right? Words of humility, words of repentance, words of I honor and extol the God of the Jews, right? And so that's the guy that is going to bring judgment to Egypt. But at the, in the moment, it seems like that guy's just another evil pagan person, right? But what does God see? God sees a bigger picture than we see. God always sees a bigger picture than we see. Whenever we think, and because we're justice people, right? Are we justice people? We are justice people. We're all about what's fair. Right? It starts at a young age, but we're all about what's fair. And we want to see justice done, and we want this and that. But we don't see the big picture that maybe God is doing something yet future that doesn't fit into our, the grid of our thinking. Does that make sense? So always leave room for that. Always leave room for that. I was talking to a guy uh, during the break, frustrated that, you know, some fruit of his labors doesn't seem to have produced the results, right? Don't we often, I mean, we, we all wrestle with that to some extent, right? We're trying to do a good thing. We're trying to follow the Lord. We look, we're looking for results. We don't see it. Well, how do we know that God's not working on that somehow? We don't know that. And so it's just, a, I love the picture of Nebuchadnezzar being the agent of judgment because when, at the time when Nebuchadnezzar's bringing in all this judgment, he really is a bad guy. But he's going to become a good guy and God would know that. And so, uh, verse 13, thus says the Lord, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph. There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate and set fire to Zoan. So these are all just regions of, of Egypt. And execute judgments in No. I will pour my fury on sin. Sin was a, a city uh, in Egypt. I would suggest if you live, ever live in a city called Sin, you should move. The strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitude of No, 
and set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain, nose shall be split open, and Noph shall be in distress daily. The young men of Avon and P. Beseth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. At Tapanes, the day shall also be darkened when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. Her, all her, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. And as for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughter shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, then they shall know that I am the Lord. But notice this verse 18. Her arrogant strength shall cease in her. And again, these are reminders to me because we are a strong people. Whatever strength we have, Whatever strength we have in this world, whether it's wisdom, whether it's knowledge, whether it's resources, whether it's opportunity, whether it's the fact that we're Americans, can be a source of arrogant strength if we're not careful. Is it okay for God to bless us? Sure. Is it okay if you're smart? Sure, that's fine. Is it okay if you're rich? Sure, that's fine. Is it okay if you're healthy? Sure. That's fine. Is it okay if you got, is it okay if you got a, a way with words or a way with people or certain giftings or whatever? Sure. Is it okay to use those for your own glory and self-exaltation? Absolutely not. Never. No way. Absolutely not. And the truth is, you know, I'm just a guy who doesn't like pain, right? I don't like pain. So I don't want God. I, I, I think... I think I've read enough Scripture and I've lived enough life to say, you know, it just seems to go a little easier if I humble myself than if God humbles me. Right? Yeah. If God takes us down, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's pretty decisive. Yeah. It's pretty decisive. Yeah. So we need to be careful. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 20, now he goes, gets specific here to uh, Pharaoh. And it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first month of the seventh day of the month, Warren Wiersbe says this is April 29th, 587. I didn't check the math. But anyway, in the 11th year of the first month, the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I've broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice all the references to the arm here. To king of Egypt. And see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on it to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I'm against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'll break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I'll make the sword, of, I'll make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen, on the other hand, the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms, and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I'll scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So God gives a very uh, specific uh, picture here of strengthening the arm of Nebuchadnezzar and weakening the arm of, um, of Pharaoh. Now, I didn't look it up, but I don't know how many muscles are in the human body, right? We'll say a ton of them, right? Ton's kind of a good round number. Ton of muscles in the human body, right? You ask my, um, 
Oh, he's here, so I won't embarrass him. But you ask a young child to show you how strong he is. Which muscle will he flex? Will he, like, do his calf? Is he going to give you that? You say, how strong are you? Biceps, baby. It's all about the biceps. I wish I could. Ugh. It's killing me right now because I, I got a kid that could do a perfect demo of this. But anyway, that'd be, it. be all that you'd remember for today. I can guarantee you that. But it's the arm. The arm is the picture of strength, right? I love this. One of my favorites, many of you heard me go off on this before, but I love one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Numbers 11, 21 to 23. God goes through this whole thing. Moses is in the desert, and the people are whining to Moses about manna. Oh, we're tired of manna. Back in Egypt where everything was awesome. See, because Egypt is where everything's awesome. Back in Egypt where everything was awesome when we were slaves and oppressed and miserable, but when everything was awesome, we had lots of meat. And here we are out in the desert. We're eating nothing but manna. Why don't we have meat? And God says, and so the people are whining to Moses, Whining is contagious. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. Whining is contagious. And so people are whining to Moses. Moses then in turn whines to God. God, these people are too much for me. I, 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 I want to quit. I want to resign from this ministry. And these people are wearing me down. And, and they want meat. God says, I'll give them meat. I'll give them so much meat it'll come out their nostrils, which it did. And then Moses says... Well, how are you going to do that? We're out here in the middle of the desert, right? Can you imagine asking God that? Yes, I can imagine asking God that because I do that stuff all the time, right? It's not a stretch for me to imagine asking God that. Well, God, I don't know if you noticed, we're out here in the desert, right? Are you just going to, and Moses even goes through the explanation. I'm not going to read it because I'm reading briefly. Moses, Moses even goes through the explanation. What, are you going to bring fish here? Are you going to, bring, you going to just bring a herd of cattle here? What are you going to do? Are you going to do this? And God says, I can bring, I'm going to bring quail. But God says this. Has the, Lord's, has the Lord's arm been shortened? That's a powerful statement. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Let me ask you for today. Whatever you're whining about. Whatever I'm whining about. I have to ask myself. So, let's see. <clears throat> I mean, I'm telling you what you already know. Okay, so I, I understand that. Let's see, he parted the Red Sea. He did the ten plagues in Egypt. Uh, he's, he's subdued kingdoms. He, he, he's done all of this. He's carried out his sovereign plan throughout history. And, and now here I am faced with a situation. God, how are you going to do that? You going to bring, you going to, you going to bring, you know, quail, or what are you going to do? And God would say, "Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Has the Lord's arm been shortened in your life? Is the Lord's arm in your life, in your situation, any shorter than the arm of the Lord that parted the Red Sea? Not at all. Not at all." And so I love this picture of the arm. Uh, the arm of Pharaoh is going to be weakened, and the arm of uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be strengthened. But ultimately, it's all about the Lord's arm. He says, I'm going to put my sword in the hand of the king of Babylon. 
So that's chapter 30. Chapter 31. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. Remember, we talked about Assyria. I mentioned, that's why I mentioned that earlier. Assyria is the one who, about 140 years prior to what we're talking about now, took out the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was the world-dominating empire at that time. Let me just pause for a second. If you were alive, let's say during the time of Jesus, What's the world-dominating empire at the time? Rome. Rome. And you see those, you know, you've seen the movies, right? The, the centurions are like all decked out and the soldiers are got big, strong, mean horses. And, and it's just such a picture of, of authoritarian strength and dominance that... If you were alive at the time of Jesus and you were just like an average citizen, you would be tempted to think, would you not? Man, this kingdom's going to last forever. This kingdom is indestructible. Right? Would you think that? If you were uh, one of the Greeks during the time of Alexander the Great and he's conquering the world, would you not think, whoa, this kingdom, this is the one, this is going to last forever. Right? And yet, if you're in our modern day times, don't we kind of, in our own sort of way, now, to be fair, the last couple of years have uprooted a lot of our thinking, to be fair. That's a whole other story. But let's say prior to a couple years ago, didn't we kind of think, you know, America is pretty indestructible. Nothing really can pull out the foundations of American civilization. I think, by golly, you know, there were, there were the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, there were the Persians, there were the Greeks, there were the Romans. You know, there's been all these big nations. Those British, they had cool red uniforms. They were strong. And now there's us. And those have all fallen. But I think we're going to hang on. Don't you feel like that? I mean, subconsciously, I think we live a little bit like that. And let me say this. No nation that's, that, that lives with the kind of arrogant pride that these nations did, no nation like that throughout history has survived. Shame on us if we think we're any different. That in itself is arrogant pride. And so, now he goes back to Assyria. He goes back. Hey, by the way, indeed, Assyria was like a cedar in Lebanon. The cedar in Lebanon, the cedar trees in Lebanon were famous for their, their grand size and majesty and strength. With fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, and its top was among thick boughs. The waters made it grow. Underground waters gave it height. With their rivers running around the place where it was planted, it sent out rivulets to all the trees of the field. I looked up rivulets. It's a word. Small rivers. 
Therefore, its height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Its boughs were multiplied and its branches became long because of the abundance of water as it sent them out. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under the, its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young. And in its shadow, all the great nations made their home. Thus it was beautiful in greatness. This is a great nation so far, don't you think? Assyria? Man, the waters, the underground waters are watering it. The birds are relaxing in it. The beasts are resting in its shade. The nations are taking security in it. This is a great nation. Thus it was beautiful in greatness and the length of its branches because its roots reached to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. And so God gives a pretty stellar description here of uh, the nation of Assyria. He uses the metaphor of a great tree to compare Assyria to the other nations. And, you know, if you're, if you're Egypt, who's receiving this uh, to Pharaoh, that you're receiving this, you're thinking, this is cool. He's going to compare me to Assyria, right? Assyria was awesome. It was fed by underground waters, the nations that it ruled. The birds and the beasts took comfort, security. By the way, they took false security in their country. Beware of looking to government for security. Now, that may sound like a political statement, but I think it's a biblical statement. I was talking to a guy this week, and he reminded me this, uh, that, you know, when Israel is ruled by the judges, right, at the end of the time of the judges, right, they said, we want a what? We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations, because they all have their government. They all have their, their kings. And we want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel said, okay, you'll get a king, but what did Samuel say? He's going to take from you. He's going to take your children. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's not going to give. And so, just these, these nations, they looked, the, the birds and the beasts, they looked to Assyria for their, for their strength, for their security, for their comfort, for their source. And we need to look beyond the nation. We need to look to God. And so we need to be reminded of that, I believe. And so uh, he said, you know, this tree was so awesome. Listen to this. It was envied by the trees in the Garden of Eden. That's, what, that's how he describes Assyria. Therefore, verse 10, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and it set, and it set up its, set its top among the thick boughs, and its heart was lifted up in its height. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations, and he shall surely deal with it. I've driven it out for its wickedness, and aliens, the most terrible of the nations, again, a description of Babylon, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. On its ruin will remain all the birds of the heaven, and on all the beasts of the field will come to its branches, so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height, nor set their tops among the thick boughs, that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. 
for they have all been delivered to death to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down to the pit. So God cut down this tree of Assyria uh, by Babylon, the most terrible of nations. And so now we see the corollary, the same is going to happen to Egypt. Thus says the Lord God, in the day when it, when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nations shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descend into the pit and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell with it. Those with those slain by the sword and those who were, who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations. To which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by a sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. And so, you know, when Assyria fell, it sent shockwaves throughout the world right? He said, I made the nations shake at the sound of its fall. And so God would say, what makes you think, Pharaoh and Egypt, that you're any different, right? If we're proud, even in, in, this, in our strength, we're no different. Chapter 32, and it came to pass in the twelfth year, the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, Take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are like a young lion among the nations, and you are like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet, and fouling their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with a company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. Then I will leave you on the land. I will cast you out of the open field and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heavens, and with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. So the idea here, hey, Pharaoh, you're like a lion. You're like a, you're like a sea monster in the river. Uh, Egypt, you recall, took a lot of their pride in the Nile River. The Nile River, they almost worshipped it because uh, they took so much pride in the, in the Nile. And so, you know, he's saying, Pharaoh, you're like a sea monster. I'm going to grab you with a net, and I'm going to throw you up on dry land and basically let you let you die. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains, and the riverbeds will be full of you when I put out your light. I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. Notice the um, he says, I'm going to make your water like blood, the water of Egypt, like blood. And I'm going to make your bright lights dark over you. What's that remind us of when we're talking about Egypt? Reminds of the plagues, right? So history always is kind of a little bit of a reminder for us. And, and uh, history is often a warning of things yet to come. So he's kind of... Uh, kind of bringing out the fact that, you know, remember Egypt, Egypt had a pretty rough time 
when those ten when when mo, those ten plagues during the time of Moses, if you'll recall. And by the way, I'm the same God as the God of Moses, and I'm capable of doing the same thing. So your water is going to be like blood, and your bright light is going to be like darkness. I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. And so, you know, he's going to be... Uh, He's going to be taken down, and it's again, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be dramatic. For thus says the Lord, verse eleven: The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you by the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them the most terrible of nations. I will cause your multitude to fall; they shall plunder the pomp of Egypt. Notice that phrase: that, that phrase, plunder the pomp of Egypt. Again, a picture of their pride. And all its multitude shall be destroyed. Also, I will destroy all its animals from beside its, many, its great waters. The foot of man shall muddy them no more, nor shall the hooves of animals muddy them. Then I will make their waters clear and make their rivers run like oil, says the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate and the country it's, is destitute of all that once filled it, when I strike all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is the lamentation with which they shall lament her. The daughters of the nation shall lament her. They shall lament for her, for Egypt, and for all her multitude, says the Lord God. So now he's, um, he's going to recall the destruction of, of Egypt. The Babylonians are going to plunder their pomp, the pomp of Egypt, and it's all about their pride. And again, he says here he's going to destroy their animals. Again, probably would have been a reminder uh, to the plagues. Verse 17, it came to pass also in the twelfth day, twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt, and cast them down to the depths of the earth, her and her daughters and the famous, of the famous nations, with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down, be placed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword, drawing her and all her multitudes, the strong among the mighty, shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with those who help him. They have gone down. They lie with the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. And so, again, we're going to be, we're going to, it, it, he's talking about Egypt is going to be destroyed, brought down to the grave, and basically he's comparing them as he moves through the end of the chapter. He's comparing Egypt to these other nations that, are, that have fallen. And so Assyria is there and all her company. So when you get to hell... Assyria will be there waiting for you, and all her company, with their graves all around her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Her graves are set in the recesses of the pit, and her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who caused terror in the land of the living. There's Elam and all her multitude, all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who have gone down, uncircumcised to lower parts of the earth, who caused the terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They've set her bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, with her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet they, be, they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. It was put in the midst of the slain. So the Elam, the, the, the area there, it was an area southeast of Assyria uh, in part of what is now Iran. Uh, they'll be there. The Assyrians will be there. There are Meshach and Tubal. They will be there. And all their multitudes. 
and with all their graves around around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though they cause their terror in the land of the living, they do not lie with the mighty who are fallen of the uncircumcised. They've gone down to hell with their weapons of war. They've laid their, their swords under their heads, but their iniquities will be on their bones because of the terror of the mighty in the land of the living. Yes, you shall be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and lie with those slain by the sword. There's Edom, her kings, and all her, remember Edom again was the descendants of Esau, uh, the brother of Jacob and they were perpetual enemies of the Jews. So her kings and all her princes will be there, who despite their might are laid beside those slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. They are the princes of the north, all of them, and the, all the Sidonians who have gone down with the slain. In shame at the terror which they caused in their might, they lie uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Pharaoh will see them. So Pharaoh's going to see all these people, and he's, in fact, no different than those that have fallen. And be comforted over all his multitude, Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, says the Lord God. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be placed in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. There you go. Egypt will be destroyed, brought to the grave. The only comfort they're going to have is that they're not alone. So Assyria will be there, Elam will be there, Meshach and Tubal will be there, Edom will be there, Sidonians will be there. And the bottom line is that all these nations, what they have in common? They stood against God. They stood against God. Now flip over, if you would, to the right, to Daniel. I want to just kind of, as we say, well, how does this apply to us? Daniel chapter 2. Because you think about these, at least this is how I think of it, okay? And I'm, I want to try to bring this around. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, you'd say, first of all, you'd say, he just read a lot of words, <laughs> right? And then you might say, he just read a lot of words about ancient Egypt at a time that, you know, during a time in history that I frankly don't put a lot of thought into, right? And, and in my mind, I have to say, okay, so how does that apply to us? Well, what is it about Egypt that caused their, their destruction, that brought about their destruction? It was arrogance and pride. And it was a lack of dependence on the Lord. And what, does that apply to me? Yeah, that applies to me. And there's a little bit of a subplot that the kingdom, the king, the nation, the person that's sort of on top or maybe blessed or maybe something, right, strong, call it what you want, thinks that that will stay forever or wants to make that stay forever. Does that make sense? It's like I have this constant battle of depending on the Lord, of being surrendered to the Lord versus driving my own destiny, right? What's the, what's the common feature of all these nations and kings we're talking about? 
drive my own nest destiny. And when I get there, I want to maintain my own destiny, right? To me, the greatest picture of this in the Scripture is uh, in Daniel. Chapter 2, and again, we won't go through it all, but I want to just talk about it for just a second. Is that fair? So indulge me for a minute, and we'll try to bring this around. Nebuchadnezzar, early in Daniel, has a dream, and Daniel interprets the dream. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by the dream and, and all of this, and Daniel's interpretation starts in verse 31. He says, You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image, this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. That's kind of weird, don't you think? So Nebuchadnezzar says, I have this dream. I had this dream. It's troubled me. They bring Daniel in, and Daniel says, here's the dream. You're looking at this image. It had a gold head. It had a silver chest. It had bronze thigh, belly and, belly and thigh of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly iron and partly clay. Now, what do you know about silver as it relates to gold? It's a little bit inferior, right? Still a precious metal, but it's a little bit inferior. So you got this gold head, then you go to silver, and then if you ever watch the Olympics, what's next? Bronze, Bronze right? And then after that is like iron, and then after that is iron and clay, right? So you have this, almost these descending metals, if you will. And he says, then the iron and clay were... Uh, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, became like chaff from the summer threshing force. The wind, the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so Daniel's like, yep, there was, these dis there was this image with all these metals, and then basically they were destroyed and another thing came up, right? And he says... This is the dream. Now we'll tell you the interpretation. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. You are this head of gold. So Daniel's given this interpretation. The head of gold is you and your kingdom. But after you will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. That's the silver. And after another, another one that's inferior, that's the bronze which shall rule all the earth, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters, and then it kind of goes on down. And basically, as it plays out, the head, the gold, was the Babylonian Empire. The silver chest was the Medes and Persian Empire. The bronze belly and thighs were the Greeks, Right? And then after that came the Romans. And that was the order of the history of the ancient world following uh, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. But he was the head of gold. Right? Now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and the prophet just told you, you're awesome, you got a head of gold. You are the head of gold in that image. But after you, there's going to be a silver. 
And then after them, there's going to be a bronze, and after them, there's going to be a, a clay. What's Nebuchadnezzar do? Chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. You know the story. And he wanted everybody to worship it, right? 60 cubits, that's 90 feet high. 6 cubits wide, that's 9 feet wide. So 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, a gold image immediately following this interpretation of this dream. What's, Nebi, what's Nebuchadnezzar saying? There ain't no silver empire coming after me. I am the gold empire. I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand forever. There's no, there's no other empire coming after me. This is it. And as a result of this, and, and because of this, and to emphasize this, I want everybody to bow down and worship the gold statue. Right? What do we tend to do when... God says, hey, this is who you are. We tend to depend on ourselves. We tend to create our own destiny. We can't just like surrender to the will of God. Or I mean, we can. We tend not to, as much as we should, surrender to the will of God. And we want to serve ourselves. Where does this all come down to? I mean, I don't think I'll ever struggle with claiming, claiming that I created the Nile River, Right? I don't think I'm ever going to struggle with like thinking I'm the most awesome king of the most awesome nation of all of history. I don't think I'm going to wrestle with that, right? But I might wrestle with trying to maintain my own self-preservation. Is that fair? I might struggle with not surrendering to the sovereign will of God. And I might want to just make sure that Scott is well cared for right? So that's how this, that, that's the starting point for getting to this level of pride that we read about in the nation of Egypt, bringing on God's wrath and God's destruction. I don't want my pride to have a starting point. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's how, I, that's, that to me, that's, that's how this comes back around to us. You know, no nation, no leader who defies the will of God will stand. Sooner or later, they will all know that he is the Lord. But that also has a personal application that I need to be super aware of pride. And can I just as, we just, as we close out, what does pride look like? Well, we think of pride as looking like Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or some of these big, you know, these big shots we read about in the Bible. Here's what pride looks like. Pride looks like me trying to create my own destiny. Pride looks like me trying to make sure I get what I feel like I want and I deserve and when I get it and when I want it and that's when I get it and me, me, me and I, I, I. That's what pride looks like, right? And can I tell you as I've been praying about this, I think there's a great formula to combat pride. Number one, thankfulness. Thankfulness. Can I tell us that we are generally indoctrinated by our culture to be self-indulgent, unthankful people? And thankfulness takes that focus off of me, right? The other thing is, what, what did Jesus say was the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you know the story. They go on, hey, who's my neighbor? Well, the neighbor was the Samaritan in the, one of the other Gospels, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's three places I can place my, my thoughts. I can place my thoughts on God. I can place my thoughts on others. Or I can place my thoughts on myself. There's really, beyond that, that's really basically the three categories. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And you know what? If I do that, if I do that faithfully, I don't really have much room to take care of Scott or to preserve Scott's gold head. Does that make sense? And if I'm thankful... It's going to make me want to bless others and stop thinking about preserving my own gold head. And to me, that's the application of, I don't want to wind up like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I do not want to wind up like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so I want to stop that process in its tracks. I know my tendency to be that guy. I, I'm well aware, believe me, I say this honestly, I am well aware of my ability to be that guy. And I want to stop that process dead in its tracks. Thankfulness, and I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbors and myself. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you give us these warnings, Lord, these clouds that warn us of rain these scriptures that tell us of the history of people that were human beings just like us. And their history is not good. And so, Lord, we want to be different. We want to be faithful. We want to be surrendered. We don't want to preserve a gold head. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and in our lives today. So, Lord, please do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.